0: Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you grok it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to understand it entirely.
1: And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing... How do you pronounce Vinge anyway?
0: I think it's technically Vingy, but I refuse to acknowledge the correct pronunciation. Okay, it could be Ving, it could be Vingy, it could be Vinge. It's, it's Vingy, but I think that saying Vinge is just the the yes, practice the of justice one. for the universe. Yeah, yeah.
1: like I remember I was 19 before I realized that hors d'oeuvre was not spelled O-R-D-E-R-V-E. And that this strange French phrase that I had had no idea of what its sound was, was the word hors d'oeuvre.
0: Well, um, yesterday I found out that when you when a fiancé is a woman, you're supposed to spell it with two E's. And add an e to blonde as well. Yes, that, yes. I always thought that blonde without an e and with an e were interchangeable, and now I find out it's just French gendered spelling. So this
1: is the one example of a gender and case system actually sneaking its way back into a language.
0: Yes, it has been gender neutral. Amazing. I, yes, I, I really uh, blame the French here. We should resist
1: this. Yes. Yes. At any event, to the context of Werner Vinge's amazing mind-bending science fiction novel,
0: Fire Upon the Deep... The importance of Hexapodia is... That those sapient bushes riding around on six-wheeled scooters have been... Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil.
1: Today, however, here we seek different key insights than Hexapodia.
0: All right, well today, our key insights are going to be about the so-called Dark Ages. And um, uh, a few days ago... I teased some historians by running a Twitter poll about whether or not there was such a thing as a dark age in Europe. I
1: did, and I enthusiastically endorsed yes, there was a dark age as one of the respondents to your Twitter poll.
0: Yes, well it won over yes won overwhelmingly, and so I think that um, you know the voice of the people has spoken and there was a dark age, sorry uh, medievalist historians. Um, but... By
1: medievalist historians, are we going to name them in particular, or are we just going to passively aggressively refuse to say who they are? Why? Well, no, no, we'll like, say who they are. I mean, like... I know,
0: I know. But I only know a couple of the, huh. the people who say this. There's, there's Eleanor Jonega is one of hmm. the uh, primary um, exponents of the idea that there is no dark ages, and right. that the it's just called the dark age because there was a lack of source material. Well, that's, uh, for that,
1: that tells you that there's a lack of source material tells you something.
0: right? Well, I felt that it did tell us something like if, if people if we don't have a lot of good uh, source material, you know, sources to mm-hmm. tell us about the so-called yep. Dark Ages, that yep. tells that's probably a hint. That something in society is changing. So, if people on aren't that logic
1: now, if people aren't writing them down, things down, and if there are no big buildings for archaeologists in the eighteen hundreds, before people really knew how to do detailed archaeology with modern technology, were around, you know, no big buildings that are easy to find and no writing kind of tells you something,
0: right? And so <laughs> that that was my reasoning, and so I made a meme, the meme That's... where the goose chases somebody. And the goose oh. is saying, well, why didn't they write anything down, rah, and chasing the medievalists around? <laughs> and and many, many people got very, 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 very mad at this meme. Do Greek, do geese really say raw? Uh, well, I mean, if sufficiently motivated, I assume they do.
1: At least when um, my uncle
0: Wally was chased
1: around a lake by a swan, he said it only said sss.
0: Well, in the context of Werner Vingy's amazing mind-bending space opera novel, A Deepness in the Sky, we -hmm. are free to anthropomorphize the animal kingdom as we see fit, because this helps interspecies understanding. Indeed we are, right? So, after I made this this silly meme. transform
1: an entirely alien species of spiders into something that looks a lot like Georgian England and the the age of Sir Isaac Newton and the Scientific Revolution. Right.
0: Well, that or the uh, yeah. the sort of mid twentieth century explosion of science yeah. around, um, yeah, you know the the World War II era and the early Cold War. All right, all right. But back um, to what we're this, talking about, yeah. people got really mad at this meme, and um and these these uh these two historians, um whose names are Matthew Gabrielle and David Perry, who, who wrote, wrote a book, a book called, called The Bright Ages. The Bright Ages. Yes. They got very mad, and uh, many people got mad on Twitter, as people do. Uh, and yelled at this meme quite a lot, Okay. Um, but not at me. They merely screenshotted it and yelled about it to each other. Uh, um, so okay. I didn't notice them yelling until later. Uh, um, in the meantime, they uh, wrote a blog post in which they cited one of your posts, but refused to name you or link to you, okay. <laughs> called us both Econo Bros. Oh. And in, rather than you know discussing in detail the idea of whether there was a dark age or not, which I assume they believe their book has already done. Uh, they instead simply waxed poetic about the faults of the econobros as they see them. So this we have been be called econobros. Time. This may mind. be
1: the first time I have been called an econobro.
0: The first time.
1: It may be the first time I've been called an econobro.
0: Welcome, bro, to the Frat. Oh, thank,
1: you. thank you. I suppose we should have some sort of celebration. I will um, say that you have put your finger on identified, fallen into the swampy morass of what is a real social fact. Right? That is, when I teach um, the period 150 to 800 in my economic history courses, you know, I now call it not the dark ages, but rather the late antiquity pause. You know, um, I see. that is, I say there's a decline that starts... Sometime between one sixty five and one eighty, all across Eurasia, um a decline in the amount of high culture and organization found in the high empires, you know, all the way from Gibraltar to kind of the J- Sea of Japan, um, you know, across the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the Han Empire, to some degree the Indian kind of kingdoms um and that the period 150 to 800 is appears to be uniquely poor among periods after th- minus 3000 in terms of the rate at which humanity is discovering new and better ways to organize itself and manipulate nature
0: um Now wait a second wait a second yeah I would like to point out a big difference in what you just said and my uh yeah. classical notion of what the dark ages were. Right. So my classical notion of the dark ages was that this was a phenomenon specific to Europe or uh specific even to western, western Europe.
1: Europe. Specific to western Europe. This is Yes Italy. and that- this is this is Italy to the and to the west. These are the provinces of Dalmatia, Panania Inferior and Superior, um, the province of Italia, Noricum, Raetia, Germania Superior, Germania Inferior, Belgica, Lugdunensis, Aquitania. Nor- no one
0: knows where these people are. Where Alpine places provinces,
1: are, Africa, Numidia, Nor- West Europe, Terraconensis, and Britannia um, are the ones that see a real Dark Age. Others see some depopulation and considerable stresses on the ability of high empires to maintain themselves, but there is no collapse of literate culture. Um, But none of the literate culture is, none of the source material that survives is written in Latin, hence the European historians of the 1800s who, and of the Renaissance before, who talked about a dark age couldn't read it.
0: And that's the reduction in source material that Genega likes to talk about.
1: Yes, 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 yes. But the reduction in source material is, you know, Western Europe, um, not elsewhere. Um, elsewhere, we have a huge Greek literature. We have a flourishing Persian literature. We have an Arabic literature, um, starting with the Quran, that grows to be truly to mighty proportions during the very... Well, wasn't the Quran in the, wasn't
0: that in like the late 600s, 700s? I mean, that's... 600s, 600s, 600s. I see. The the Dark Ages, so so that was typically don't they think the Dark Ages ended in the in the um, late first millennium, maybe like around eight hundred or nine hundred. Yeah, when the Convent- Ages... A
1: conventional thing is that char the conventional Western European periodization is the rise of the Frankish Empire and Charlemagne in eight hundred brings an end to the Dark Ages, although it briefly returns to some degree with the Viking invasions. Um, I see. The hard t- people have a hard time fighting off the Viking invasions, so, but it's certainly gone by a thousand.
0: I see. And um, and Europe's population sort of recovers. Its economy sort of recovers, uh, not yeah. to the degree of the Roman Empire, but to some degree, to some considerable degree, yes. And but okay. So what uh, to sum up? There's two things we might call the Dark Ages. There's mm-hmm. uh, a a pronounced. Um, yeah collapse of of various sorts of high civilization, of we civilization life, in western europe urban life and then also high civilization literacy yeah right in in western europe specifically right. and then in the whole world which is a heck of a lot bigger than western europe um there is some sort of slowdown in economic growth uh, right. as, and, far as, collapse, tell, as far as we can tell
1: and the collapse of empires. as far as we and barbarians running riot you know and you know the chinese three kingdoms period and so forth and the falls of repeated
0: persian empires and so on i see Uh, so there's some general political chaos um in addition to western localized western european poverty right right and Mm -hmm. and so the question of whether we want to actually associate those things or use the same term for both those things depends on whether or not we think these things all had a some sort of common cause like climate change or whatever
1: or political upset or the huns and so forth and more generally the people of the steppe figuring out how to get better at the social practice of war the
0: advent of smallpox or whatever the the plagues were at that time yes Um, um and so yeah so so i i was only i only ever thought that there was a dark age in western europe and i thought that um or at least europe in general Um, Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you sort of, you notice that the Roman Empire, it's big, it's powerful, everyone kind of respects it to the point where people very far away from wherever the Roman Empire was, start calling themselves Rome, and the czars calls themselves Kaiser and all this thing. The Roman Empire was big and impressive. Up
1: until 1948,
0: right? Up 1948 (laughs) was
1: the time when the last person to call himself Caesar stopped doing so. Right, right, and little Caesar's father, King George VI, called himself Kaiser E Hind until 1948,
0: Caesar of India. That Um, is really interesting. I did not actually know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, then, medieval Europe is generally held to be fairly uh, weak politically, as in they sort of got their butts kicked in the Crusades. They were, they seemed. And and this is this is medieval Europe, which had actually recovered from the, right. the period we're calling the Dark Ages. Even right. then, even in even in the Middle Ages, Europe was still sort of a backwater to the degree where Tamerlane refused to invade it. Timur right. Right. Uh, refused to invade it because he said there's nothing valuable there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Mongols had a big uh, argument about which place they should invade uh, China or Europe. And basically China won because it was just much, 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 much richer. Than Europe Europe had nothing they really wanted even though China was much harder to invade um and Subotai, that was
1: though later on Subotai did show up
0: um oh, that right the the argument that I'm talking about is speak. after him yes so okay, he conquered okay. uh right. Hungary, basically modern-day Hungary briefly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh and then um the Khan died uh Ogede right. Khan died because he was an alcoholic and died early mm-hmm. and um probably obese as well Yes. And then uh, the Mongols all have to go back to Karakoram for this curl tie for this assembly, and they argue basically and yeah. the two factions are the, the invade China faction and the invade Europe faction. And, and the it's the monkey
1: faction and the, you know, yes. it's the monkey and the then later the Kublai Khan faction that says let's get southern China. It's close right
0: and 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 monk wins wins that argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so but then gets and everyone, shot should by buy,
1: everyone should buy everyone should buy a now a decades old historical novel by the wonderful Cecilia Holland called Until the Sun Falls, which is about the Mongol invasion of Russia and Hungary, which is one of the greatest things I have ever read in terms of the past as a foreign country. Um, And especially the world of Psin Khan, the kind of commander for reconnaissance for Sabatai, the fictional commander for reconnaissance of Sabatai during the invasion of Europe.
0: Um, Mm, I think one of the great characters. Um, um, okay, but back to the back to the evidence.
1: Yeah, um, but evidence. When, let's, let's talk
0: about the data. Like, what do we know about living standards yes. in Europe during the period that most people call the Dark Ages?
1: And I sent you lots of slides, all of which come from papers by Willem Youngman and others, which most of which are the slides I use to teach this stuff. Um, and I'll put them up on the kind of show notes. And I guess the first and most impressive one is the shipwrecks. Um, That is, we found lots of shipwrecks in the Mediterranean. And we can date shipwrecks by pretty much what is the last date of the coins found in the shipwreck. Um, We find maybe 10 ships wrecked in the years between minus 700 and 600 in the Mediterranean. By the year minus 500, um, classical antiquity Greek efflorescence, it's up to 45. Um, by the time that Rome starts conquering the Mediterranean between minus 200 and minus 100, we found 195 shipwrecks, reaching a peak reaching a peak of 325 shipwrecks in the years between zero and 100. Um, thereafter, there's a steep falling off. We've only found 120 shipwrecks for between I mean, the years 100 and 200. Um, but beware. People were switching from carrying goods in clay, in fired clay vessels called amphorae, to carrying them in wooden barrels, which they discovered how to make from the Gauls of France. And if you're diving in the Mediterranean, it's an awful lot easier to find a large clay um, broken vessel on the seafloor than it is to find a barrel. So a bunch of the decline from 320 shipwrecks to 130 is simply because we're now looking for things with barrels in them rather than m4A. They're harder to find.
0: What about, what about monetary policy? Could monetary policy affect this? Because if people stop minting new coins because they think there's too many coins and they're yeah. trying to implement hard money, um, could they we always just fail see? It.
1: They always fail. These coins are passed around so much, they have to be called in and reminted every century or so anyway.
0: Got it. Um, Could ships have gotten better at staying afloat and not wrecking?
1: They could have, but the Mediterranean is still a dangerous place. Um, And, you know, but the point is that by the years 700 to 800, we've only found three ships that we can date to those years as opposed to 330 at the peak. You know, that Mediterranean commerce... Shipborne commerce collapsed the Complete populations collapse. we have for relatively stable settled communities you know, that we see in the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean you know also appear to collapse cities that were thirty thousand souls in the year one hundred or so are down to less than five hundred by six hundred um the amount of pottery shards we find in Urban areas where there is continued occupation you know, drop by a factor of four. The amount of wood harvested for construction in Western Germany, you know, there's not a lot of wood finds in Germany before the year minus 100. Between minus 100 and the year one, as Western Germany becomes absorbed, the Rhine Valley becomes absorbed into the Roman Empire, it quadruples. Um, and then stays where it is until the year 225 or so, after which the amount of wood harvested for construction in Western Germany collapses back to levels far below what it was, um, even before the year minus 100, only starting to recover in the 400s or so. Big finds of animal bones from people pigging out and eating feasts. Um, You know, we don't find that money in the provinces after the 400s. In Italy, we find large assemblies of animal bones for feasts a couple centuries later, right, into the 500s, into the 600s. But in the provinces, we haven't found any. Um, And all of this, all of this makes us strongly think um, that, plus the fact that the populations of Rome and other cities appear to have collapsed, that cities that were substantial things that had good places in the economy, for example, the city of Aphrodisias and what is now Turkey, which was the place where you would go if you were in a city around a Mediterranean and wanted someone to make a marble sculpture of your mayor so you could reward him when he retired, that city simply vanishes you know, the market for what it's producing disappears and everyone leaves. Um, that makes us think that, yes, there was a pretty complete collapse of settled urban life, of prosperity, of the ability to carry goods around um, in Western Europe sometime in the years between 300 and call it 600. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh. Right. All right. So so every measure that we every proxy that economic mm-hmm. historians have thought to construct uh, mm-hmm. for um, for living standards in time, you know, pre, you know, times before we had any measurement of this um, collapses at this time. And when we talk about this um, time, by the way, we're talking are- about collapsing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're the, talking about before the official fall of the Roman Empire. It we're talking about well before, yes. We're talking about the late 200s or 300s.
1: Well, we really see an inflection point around the death of Marcus Aurelius. Right. The standard historians study, um, that of Gibbon's "Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire," dates the start of the decline to the death of Marcus Aurelius. Who was the last of the five good emperors of the antonine dynasty and was succeeded by his son commodus caesar who is the fictionalized version of whom is the villain in the russell Crowe movie gladiator you know and that after the death of marcus aurelius the belief is that things went to hell politically or that was gibbon's belief our belief now is much more that things went to hell politically and economically And went to hell economically because the plagues came and the plagues depopulated the Roman Empire. And because all of a sudden you had many fewer peasants and you still had the same number of slots for governors and consuls and administrators and so forth, you know, the upper class really turned up the screws, um, turned the institutions of the Roman Empire into much
0: more nastier and extractive ones. But this is a theory. This, is, this a is that's a pretty grand historical. This theory. This is a grand theory.
1: historical theory. I want to stick close see, to the
0: data. I want to stick. We, yeah, what I want to stick close to the stuff we know and not go too far into endorsing some sort of theory about the why Rome commerce, declined. You know, did commerce and urban
1: life and construction and other things collapse in Western Europe and to a lesser degree in Eastern Europe and throughout the Roman Empire? And the decline starts around little before the year 200.
0: Um, right. And what we also is the low see, point? What, uh, what's the low point as far as we can tell?
1: Oh, maybe 600 or so. It's different in different areas. Uh, maybe 700 in some places. You know. And we also see that the um, types of things that are in our much, much diminished source material are considerably different different you know that is one thing that struck me that struck a lot of people um is that the people who are writing things in the 500s the 600s and the 700s um you know they don't write too good the most what do you mean they don't write example of this that strikes me the most comes from a book called mimesis which i think is the best English criticism book ever written and which when I read it as a freshman almost made me become an English major. But before I discovered that it was kind of the only book of English criticism like this. Um, when well, you know, Eric Auerbach is going through literature as a form of representing human life, and he comes to the end of antiquity. And the next thing he comes to is the Bishop Gregory of Tours, who wrote a history of the Franks, which is one of the few things we actually have you know, from the period that is called the Dark Ages. And, you know, ancient literature, someone like Thucydides or Herodotus or Cicero or Tacitus, you know, they polished their prose. They knew how to write. They knew how to write grammatically. They knew how to make sly inferences and how to raise doubts and questions in the minds of the readers. But, you know, Gregory of Tours... um. Gregory of Tours, Eric Auerbach called his narrative method that which is frequent in spoken conversation, especially among educated or hasty or careless speakers. Something like, Last night I was late getting away from the office because Smith had come to see the boss and they were inside talking about the ex business and just before the boss comes and in which nothing. Now hold up there, Brad. Hold up there, Brad. In which nothing makes consistent narrative sense. All right, hold up there. You do not start where you mean to start, and you have to go to the whole end and then go back and read it all again before you understand what the point of it is. That everything is a first draft.
0: Okay, but you know the switch from from what you know what we would think of as simpler uh, of more like flowery artistic writing to simpler writing doesn't necessarily mean it's worse. I'll give you an example. Um, like. A whole lot of people try to write in a very flowery, literary style Mm -hmm. um, for uh, various magazines, which I shall not name right now. Uh, And those articles are bad. And then you have someone uh, like, say, Matt Iglesias, who writes an extremely plain and simple prose, uh, but gets his point across much better than a lot of people who try to write extremely flowery prose um, on a number of websites and online magazines. And um, so lack of floweriness is not necessarily bad. No, but if you're not going to be flowery, if you're going to be ungrammatical,
1: um, you need to be clear. You need to be consistent,
0: you know. uh, I see. See, really, no one can even tell what these writers are saying. It's very hard to tell what these writers are saying. It's as if all a first draft,
1: you know, that... For example, consider my great great uncle Ernest, right? Um, My great grand uncle Ernest, I think one of his best sentences is After a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. You know, less than 20 words, um, only two of them of more than one syllable. You know, the simplest possible prose. You know, and yet this is um, the most powerful, right? One of the most powerful literary acts in the entire corpus of English language. English language. Well, okay, it is let's the not end of a farewell to arms, which is one of the greatest novels in the world, which everyone should read. You know, Lieutenant Frederick Henry, um, kind of reacting to, you know, the death of Catherine. Um, in childbed, right? Um, that's Gregory of Tours cannot do that. Could not do that. You know, he simply wrote it's down bit, his first draft of what okay, was. Okay, this on. this is
0: a bit subjective. This, this 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 dissing of Gregory of Tours is you know this quality related uh sort of measurement, this qualitative measurement of I don't like the writing of Gregory of Tours. Well, fine, you don't like it, but I want to stick close to the data and say that. The fact that this guy sounds like a crappy writer does not necessarily constitute hard data to me. Um, you know, I'm going to, I would I'm say going to be a skeptic I would, here. Okay. Saying,
1: okay. I would say that there's that there are no non-crappy writers. If you uh, read, I case.
0: mean, we're at the we're at sort of the peak of historical civilization right now. Yeah. And if you look at the text yeah. that our writers produce, yes. there's some good stuff, but, but of most of it by word count will be Harry Potter fanfic. Yeah. In which people write ex- extremely like teenagers write extremely incompetently about the Harry Potter characters having gay sex. And that is what most people are writing in at the peak of civilization. So let's you know let's not uh, be too quick to use qualitative measures to ju- of writing quality to judge civilization here.
1: Is this the point where I'd say that I am enjoying and might actually put in the show notes some Sauron and Gladrial fanfic? Yes. All right. Okay. Um, whatever. I what I wanted to do with Eric Auerbach was to simply reinforce that the high culture stuff of civilization, you know, is extremely threadbare in the dark ages. Um, but And there is a big but, Um, you know, oh, and then the political difficulties and the increased extractive and the fall off in stuff is then greatly amplified as the Huns appear coming out from the Eurasian steppe, and as the Huns drive other tribes of barbarians in front of them, and the barbarians are by this time organized enough to actually pose a threat to the Roman army. And by the year 476, there is no Roman emperor in the West at all. The Roman Empire is centered at Constantinople and is a thing of the Balkan Peninsula of Anatolia, Syria, and Egypt. And they hang on there, maintaining their high civilization, their army, and their organization there. But they simply have to let the entire Western half of the Empire go you know, into the Dark Ages. You know, but, 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 but... In addition to all of the other measures of prosperity, civilization, consumption, construction, high culture, high literacy we have, we also have a huge number of femurs that we can date to when the people died by carbon dating, what the amount of carbon there is in the bones, Uh, of carbon 13, there is in the bones. Mm -hmm. And the femurs, um, all these femurs we find Well, you know, in the Eastern Roman Empire, the femurs we find in 700 or 600 or 500, they're kind of a little bit shorter than the femurs we found in 400, 300, 200, 100, and so on and so forth. Um, In the southeastern Europe, um, you know, the femurs are significantly larger um, after the year, 350 than they were before um you know then in the western mediterranean um in general that is not southeastern europe but much more north africa Spain. um yeah the femurs are somewhat bigger and in the northwestern provinces right in gaul germania and britain the femurs that we find after 300 are bigger and the femurs we find after 500 are much much bigger
0: than all right so just to pause a, a second so them. that people listening to this will know what's going on femurs a leg bone thigh um, bone, the big thigh bone the they big thigh bone, bone. Um, it is your, your mighty mighty thews yes right um of conan yeah. and so yeah. but the thing is that um Normally, if we saw people's bodies getting bigger and more robust, we would say, oh, they're getting more calories. They must be richer.
1: And they're getting what? better calories when they're young and they're having better diets. Right. And they are more biomedically fit and they are healthier.
0: Right. So so this, you know, it sounds like we're making an argument that Europe, Western Europe got richer because their bones got bigger and they became bigger people. Or at least
1: became healthier. less unequal. Right, that there is an interpretation of the Dark Ages as that for ordinary people, life got better because you overthrew the decadent, oppressive Roman slave-holding aristocracy, you know, Q. Ben-Hur, and it was replaced by Germanic kings who were closer to the people, and people ate more meat because you no longer had these huge slave plantations, and, you know, life was better, and you didn't have the same kind of effete literary intellectuals, but You know, life went on. Um, And that, I think, is very much the bright age's interpretation, that people shifted what they did, and there was a significant reduction in, you know, exploitative high cultural stuff, and the oppressive and nastier parts of civilization. But life went on in different forms, and people didn't live more than 500,000 in Rome anymore, but they lived as good lives as they had after the plague as they had before
0: right but but if we see femurs getting larger at the same time that population completely crashes yeah that suggests that perhaps we're looking at a composition effect where a whole lot of people die and yeah. the weak people die and only the big conan types survive especially um only the, the people things, who have naturally big if femurs.
1: things keep on coming right um that if all of a sudden life becomes much more hazardous say the huns or the goths or the burgundians or the vikings or the saxons or the angles or the jutes are coming in um and if you're bigger and stronger you have a better chance of at least being able to run away um you know that that is suggests that uh that life might have become much more harmful and much more stressful Um, as a result of the fact that there were repeated barbarian incursions. um, Life might also have become more boring. That is, people might have been shorter before 350, because since there was a higher population and much more commerce, there were much more diseases. And a lot of people's energy as children had to go to fighting off the diseases, rather than to growing the long bones. you know, it's possible to say that average standards of living um, were certainly higher after 350 in Western Europe than they were before, or typical standards of living were higher in a biomedical sense. Um, but you lose all of the comforts and appurtenances of civilization, um, like cups, utensils, a house um, that actually has a tile roof, Um, You lose all those appurtenances. And um, the question is, why does the population stay low? To the extent that it is a farm size is big, so you get lots to eat. Why does the population then stay low, given that one third of couples do not have surviving sons and yet everyone wants to have one? Um, And the answer has to be that, well, it's because life is pretty brutish. You know, that you might well wind up killed by the landlord next door simply because he has a beef with your landlord and thinks killing his, your landlord's, your, the peasants of your landlord is a good way to get your landlord to come out and fight.
0: Right. So basically, Europe uh, becomes an extremely violent place where people are often killing each other.
1: That seems likely. That is, that seems to be the do way we, to understand.
0: Do we better find a lot more of biomedical people who appear, appear to have
1: died violently? Well, people always appear to have died violent. It's a pretty violent place, right? Um
0: you know Maybe. but
1: the, you know, um,
0: do we that, find fewer people who die appear to have died of old age and infirmity.
1: It's too hard to tell. you know we really do not have enough um to do those kinds of calculations. I see. What we do find, you know, what we do find, the only place in which Western Europe around 700 or 750 or so kind of matches or exceeds what was going on in Greco-Roman classical antiquity is lead pollution in Greenland ice cores. That is lead pollution in Greenland ice cores. Um starts out very low, um, reaches a peak sometime between minus 300 and the year zero. When you dig up an ice core from Greenland that was deposited between minus 300 and zero, there's a bunch of lead in it. Mm. Romans and Greeks before them are mining lead and then smelting it in Spain and elsewhere and the fumes go up into the atmosphere, and some of them go to Greenland, and they fall as lead items into the Greenland ice, into the Greenland glaciers, and there they have been for us to dig up until then. But once again, after the year zero, it starts to decline, and it declines to a very low level around 500, after which it takes off. And by the period between 800 and 1,000, There's more lead pollution in Greenland ice cores than there ever was in classical antiquity. And, you know, by 1200, it's kind of off the charts. It's more than two and a half times as much lead as there was at the height um, of classical antiquity. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only thing a sign of high culture or technology than... Lots of lead. The Middle Ages, lots of lead.
0: Okay, in but that's but that's really by the Middle Ages, not what we commonly call the Dark well,
1: Ages. Not the Dark Ages, although it starts, right? It starts by and in, still in what we would call the Dark Ages. Um,
0: okay, but And what... the belief
1: is largely because there was special demand for lead, because Europeans thought churches should have lead roofs, and Europeans thought there should be lots of churches.
0: Because the lead is used in stained glass windows? And in church, but mostly in roofs. Why do they? Why do they use lead in church roofs? Um, why would you put lead an, in a roof?
1: Simply, it was simply a common architectural decision. Right? Um, I think, in large part, it was because they didn't know how to make tiles at sufficient scale at sufficient cheapness anymore. Right.
0: Um, I see. You know, and, and they didn't Tiles have the capacity had been, to produce Tiles other had been the
1: thing. Tiles had been the thing a civilization spreading from the Mediterranean naturally does. Um, and if you've lost that civilizational heritage completely and you want something to keep the rain out um, of your big building, this is the only big building you're constructing. right? I mean, remember that Charlemagne could not stay in his palace in the year 800 all year round because it was not possible to bring enough food for his court and his bodyguard to aix la chapelle um, all year round. So he had to ride around the empire to eat food in different places, simply because the transportation network um, was so shocked.
0: That's pretty crappy. But okay, so yes. uh, so people put lead in the church roofs, and they got a bunch of lead poisoning. And now we know, of course, that lead poisoning will make people more violent and crazy, uh, mm-hmm. And Dom also. And, Although it's
1: still very, very far from the levels that we saw in we have seen in our past century. They didn't. Okay, so
0: so out. we're not looking at sort of a lead poisoning Middle Ages sort of phenomenon where where people beat each other up because they've been lead poisoned. That was more mm-hmm. uh, Gen X and the Boomers. Right. Yes. I see. The um, but okay, back to the the main idea. All right. So, uh, in Europe at least, we see. A dramatic decline of living standards. Um,
1: now, well, a the, the, the dramatic decline of comfortable standards for things that someone in the middle class and the upper class, or the upper levels of the working class, would consume. Um, right, and also fewer changing, people. We see uh, changing, Yeah, but the the transformation from being a plantation slave who has to sleep in an underground bar at barracks. You know, a to being a simple serf who's actually allowed to have your own hut above ground um, and who isn't being whipped by an overseer all the time. You know, the fall of the export of the commodity producing oriented plantation was almost surely a good thing for people who would otherwise have been slaves.
0: Right. So obviously things didn't get worse for everybody, but they got worse for people on average, and there were a lot fewer people, period. Uh, you know, this. There's this idea, uh, which you advance in your book, um, which um, is basically that we were a Malthusian society up until relatively recently, hey, yes. and that if society uh, became more complex and technologically advanced and powerful and organized, it would lead to the production of more humans uh, more than it would lead to a gain in the richness of any of the average human um, you we just make more people. And so yeah. during the Roman Empire and later during the Middle Ages, Europe managed to make quite a lot of people. And during what we call the Dark Ages, they didn't manage to make as many people. And right. so that's um, that's a sign that there was a lot less economic activity going on
1: mm-hmm.
0: or so the under that
1: productivity per unit of land was much lower than it had been. Because the place had been depopulated, and yet it wasn't rich enough and organized enough for the population to recover.
0: That's interesting. What Do we have any idea of what drove agricultural productivity in those days? Um, well, you know, there is climate. There is a belief
1: that there was a kind of classical optimum for climate, um, after which the rains become less secure or less certain, and the temperature becomes a little bit colder there are even people who talk about a little ice age although it is by far too little to even be called a little ice age um as we say it's hard to tell and it's more that when the climate shifts it's disruptive because the things you got used to do during the previous climate segment are no longer the right things to do and it takes a while um centuries for you to figure out what the right thing to do actually is um you know, we don't have that much data. Right? Um, pretty much all we have is Dioc- the Emperor Diocletian's price list. Right? Um, that is, he set down a list of prices in an edict of his in year 301, and people still argue over whether this edict was supposed to be what everyone charged for everything or the most the army would pay
0: you know, for anything. A price um, cap or a price control.
1: Yeah. How much you know that is it just something is it just something that the government decrees we're just gonna do this for the army, this is what the army is gonna pay. Or was it supposed to have wider application? You I know see. that everyone's supposed to transact.
0: You know, law of one uh, prize, it's probably ballpark.
1: Well, no, the Roman army is big, but the Roman army is also the kind of thing that has the spears, and if you don't sell to the Roman army at the price it asks, bad things can happen to you in the year 301 um what it tells us is that given wages and given the simple cost of buying 2,000 calories worth of grain you know that the roman empire around 301 looks to be as poor as the poorest of world cities you know, during the early modern era um you know that kind of the Roman Empire looks to be only about a quarter as rich, you know, as say Amsterdam um in 1600. You know, and in the Roman third, Empire in 301. Yeah, and only a third only as rich,
0: a quarter you know, as, as rich as Amsterdam as in, 1600. in 1600. Yep, I see. Um, that There's a quite a bit of time difference between there's those. Quite a bit of time difference, and there are words where was about... richer than than Rome in 301. Mm-hmm. Yes, um China, basically, or no. Indian cities
1: um, probably not meant not very many places, um, Constantinople, you know that it's pretty Malthusian, um all the way across Eurasia at least, and to the extent that you are richer, it's because you live in a high disease area, a truly high disease area, um and you really need the extra calories that <laughs> putting I the see. population down and keeping getting you extra calories. Right played off the
0: disease cities at that time did not uh naturally grow population wise they they so no, many they people shrank. died of they disease that...
1: you know they are definitely places where your babies are going to die at a significantly higher rate kind of 70 percent of them rather than 40 percent of them before the age of five and so cities are places where you have to bring people in um But what they did do what people did do during the dark ages was they did do mosaics and build churches and think about god in extremely interesting ways and fight and argue with each other about god in ways that always strike me as really weird um on the grounds of what's a little monkey doing thinking it has any idea about the nature of god um Yet they really thought they did. yeah. So much that, um, you know, um, Bishop Athanasius was in fact expelled from one of the church councils of Constantinople because he, no, it wasn't. It was that St. Nicholas, um, Santa Claus himself, was expelled from one of the church councils because he apparently punched out his fellow bishop Arius in a bar fight over the extent to which the god the son was the equal of god the father or actually was a being that had been created by god the father after god the father's own existence began so there
0: was an actual santa claus bar brawl that actually happened. actually is a santa claus bar bar brawl.
1: Um, amazing um, okay
0: versus arius um, <laughs> i didn't know that either all right so no. my question is um, um the people who have been um, saying quite mean things about us econobros in their, in their snippy blog posts, um, these people, uh, um, uh, Matthew, Gabrielle, and David Perry, the authors of the bright ages. Yeah. um, Allege that, uh, that basically there's no such thing as the dark ages. It was a great time for civilization. Blah, blah, blah. um, That, Uh, To the extent that there are fewer sources from that time, it's because they got burned down in World War II or in other fires. Really? Really? Library fires. Yes, they say. Um, there are quite literally hundreds of archives across Europe containing thousands of manuscripts that were created during the European Middle Ages. They say the Middle yes. Ages, not the Dark Ages. Yes, yes. yes. and these numbers don't even account the massive archival loss that happened during World War II or the various library fires that dot modern history. So right. it appears that they've taken the Dark Ages and sort of conflated it with a later Middle Age period in which there were more <laughs> texts being produced. Uh, there's a little rhetorical sleight of hand on their part, but um, but uh. Still, they're sort of... um, Well, there there is a certain
1: Mott and Bailey-esque thing going on here, right? That is, there is the view that it was the Dark Ages until the Renaissance, right? Um, That it is the 1400s and the growth of Italian urban culture and the arrival of Greek manuscripts in the flight from Constantinople after 1453. Um, That before the Renaissance, all was dark. Um... And you know then that's certainly wrong that is I'd say, from the year a thousand on, civilization and high culture are while not you don't have the incredible urban city density that you have in the Roman Empire um you do have you know a truly functioning society with its own very religious oriented high culture successfully up and running you know you don't have the kind of situation you had between i would say 500 and indeed call it 800 or call it a little later call it 900 given the viking incursions of the 800s you know when your your ability to simply find someone to keep the records for your accounts is going to be extremely, extremely hazardous, simply because there aren't enough people who can read and write um, around to do the minor administrative work required in keeping track of who owes taxes. Um, you know, that, you know, Um, William the Conqueror, after he conquers England, does manage to find people to ride around England and write down what all the property is and who has what rights over it in his so-called Doomsday book. But this is an extremely heavy lift um, for English society in the late 1000s. And yet the Roman Empire was conducting provincial censuses whenever it took over a province and periodically afterwards, um, as witnessed the minor Jewish revolt against the census of the year six.
0: Um, right. So what what is the how can we summarize the argument of Gabriel and Perry? Like what are they arguing and and why do they just sort of ignore all the economic uh you know evidence of a great impoverishment in for at least 300 years in the um in the early first millennium AD?
1: Well there's the argument that you lose parasitic cities which are run by extraordinarily vicious exploitative landlords who keeps lots of slaves on plantations. Um, And that yes, there's a population decline, but the big decline is in the amount of surplus extracted by the rapacious upper class as you replace Romans by Germans um, as your rulers. And the Germans, right, the tribals, the successive tribes are kind of nicer people than the end here we we go into the Roman empire of the movie Ben-Hur. Um, you know, and that it's decline in exploitation rather than decline in civilization. You know? And, you know, there is kind of a point um, to that.
0: Mm-hmm. But only... We decline in, Inequality, if we were to measure, yeah. you know, it, it's sort of like the GDP versus inequality. Debate. Yeah. It's the yeah. idea if GDP goes up, but inequality goes yeah. up, um, then it, it's bad. And if yeah. GDP goes down, it's fine as long as inequality goes down. Yeah. And uh, the people yeah. at the bottom are doing a little bit better. It's sort of a Rawlsian uh, uh, value function, as we would call it in economics.
1: And I would say that's a third of a point. And there's another third of a point, which is that, you know, intellectual life, call it before 350 or so, was, you know, overwhelmingly concerned with things of this world Um that is, you have people try writing literature, people doing science or trying to do science. um people you know, generally writing about political things and so on and so forth. Um and a lot people putting on plays, you have a lot of stuff going on, but it's mostly focused on, you know, this world with the gods appearing only at the end of the play in order to ensure a happy ending or with someone like Marcus Aurelius writing, you know, that basically we're just jumped up monkeys, we really don't understand them, but either everything is predetermined, in which case you shouldn't complain about it, but should accept it and realize it, Um, or there's a benevolent providence, in which case you should act like a just man in order to receive its benevolence, Um, or it's all just chaos and atoms in the void, but just because it's all chaos and atoms in the void is no reason to be an asshole, right? Um, The kind of standard Stoic philosophy. But after 350 or so, the high culture that exists is overwhelmingly focused on God and our relationship to God and how other people have the wrong relationship to God and we need to do bad things to them. And how. They're going to be, at the end of time, devoured by enormous locusts with the faces and breasts of women and the teeth of lions, Um, as it says in the Book of Revelation. And that this itself is kind of as valid and as interesting and as noble a high culture as any of the other high cultures we have. Witness the astonishing artistic achievements of the Middle Ages and even before them, of the of church architecture, you know and construction, which start even during the so called Dark Ages, um, and indeed the you know um, the mosaic of the Emperor Justinian and his attendants in the Church of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy, which was made when around five forty five or so in the middle of the so called Dark Ages. Um, Admittedly, it was made by Eastern Roman Byzantine artisans from Constantinople who had been imported by the general Belisarius attempting to reconquer Italy for the Roman Empire. That's one of the most beautiful things in the world and I greatly envy my sister who has seen it in person while I have not. So, and, you know, the counter to that is that, well, you know, the theological disputes of the early middle ages are kind of horrifying um in terms of how mean people were to each other and how seriously they took them
0: um and they're horrifying i mean i think it's sort of horrifying when people would kill each other over religion at all but right? that's sort of until extremely recently, people would kill each other over religion and people still kill each other. But now over things that we decided to yeah, stop But in the religion, Roman empire and in the
1: Greek people did not kill each other over religion. Um, you know, you call your teaching? head God Zeus, pater. I, we call our head God, Jupiter. Um, you know, it's a minor difference in translation and accent. Uh, um, you know,
0: we worship Yahweh, you worship Chamash, right? Okay, we understand. Were the religious wars between the uh, Byzantine Empire and the, the uh, Persian um, yeah. uh, Sassanid Empire pretty fierce?
1: Well, they're not terribly... They don't become terribly religious.
0: They were extinguishing Steals the, the eternal flame it. and stealing pieces of the true cross and all this stuff. <sighs>
1: it increased gets more religious over time agreed you know that by the time of heraclius um it's certainly the case that there has been a that mobilizing your people behind your particular god becomes a much much more stressful thing you know um than it had been before
0: um What's interesting to me, but I know this is a bit of a sidetrack. What's interesting yeah. is that, you know, I, I, uh, I've read, you know, Ian Morris books, you know, Ian Morris mm-hmm. was talking about how basically people got more religious all over the world. I'm sure he's not the yes. only person to yes. talk about this. Yes. I'm sure everybody yes. talks yes. about this, but that's where I first read that. Yes. And so basically you have, you have Buddhism in, um, in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, much of Asia, uh, you have the eventual emergence of Islam and you just have sort of, uh, more emphasis on religion in a lot of different places i'm not sure about india actually
1: you do, well, do buddhism
0: okay. happened buddhism
1: starts in india and sweeps over india and hinduism makes a great many accommodations with it you know that is the general feeling that before the year minus 500 or so you know the gods were very much like celebrities you know, they sometimes show up and do things, but, you know, mostly, you know, you pray to them and hope they send the rain, but you don't have a personal relationship with them, you know. And after the year minus 500, all of a sudden, the idea that you would have a personal relationship with God that is going to help you personally, yeah, you know, that idea sweeps over Eurasia um, and is a very, very, very powerful one. And indeed, exactly what kind of God that is and how we should consider it and what nasty things we should do to people who don't hold exactly the same conception of God that we do, Um, that is a lot of medieval high culture and is one reason we tend to call things medieval when we think they're bad. Um, because the right response to the fact that the citizens of Bézier happened to worship God in a different way than we do isn't that we should kill them all, and God will then sort it out. Um, And yet that was a very medieval way of thinking.
0: Right. Um, So ultimately, do the the historians who get extremely incensed when you use the term dark ages, uh, do they have much of an argument other than we like this period in history. We think it's cool and neat, and you shouldn't use a nasty word for it.
1: I think so, right? I think that you can say that in the Western Roman Empire from the year 400 until the year 800, um, there is you can only you can only talk about that part of late antique civilization as not being a dark age if you're willing to close your eyes to a huge amount of evidence um, and then also and pretend that things that actually happened you know did not um it's not merely you know a change in the mode of elite social organization that becomes less parasitic and less exploitative right um It's a genuine dark age um, in which you can no longer trade with pretty much anyone far away without running enormous risks and in which a great deal of societal knowledge is lost and in which life appears to have become nastier and more brutish, um, at least to the extent that, you know, the population needs to be much healthier in order for people to manage to survive on average.
0: Right. So, um, the pushback from these, uh, these couple of historians against the idea that you can measure human progress quantitatively. Um, I agree that, you know, not all of the value of society can be measured quantitatively, but the, the pushback feels to me to go too far into sort of nihilism where we say it doesn't matter how much people have to eat it doesn't matter how much physical safety people have it doesn't matter how much people die of disease or how many children die you know et cetera. Et cetera. what matters is simply whether a scholar many years later thinks that your historical period is cool and interesting and that's to me that's nihilistic well um, historical it, periods are pretty cool I think that is true, but, but to but, say that they're all equal and therefore in, in terms of the, the coolness makes them equal because yes. someone thinks all of them are cool, Yes, you know, for any given period, there is some historian who thinks it's cool. Therefore yes. all the periods are equal and quantitative measures of economic standards of living and stuff are just yes. sort of Whig history and econo no, and even you know, racist. I think, I think they even, uh, they, by the way, they, um, they do call me uh, racist at one point. I see. For what? Um, they say that... Um, they say... Uh, let's leave aside the Eurocentric, frankly, kind of racist assumption that all civilizations should be defined by widespread literacy. Um, now, I didn't... I would know, have thought about that was
1: Chinese. Literacy. I would have thought that was a Chinese assumption much more than a European one.
0: Right. well yes it's they kind of the of people the... the people
1: who are pushing literacy programs in the year 800 and saying everyone should have a wood printed Buddhist Sutra and know how to read it um were in China uh, not in Europe at all
0: right and and Europe was pretty late to universal literacy I think
1: so. very very late to universal literacy right?
0: um but no. yeah so so Gabriel and Perry have invented an argument in their minds attributed it to me, though I never said it, and labeled me racist because of this. And that is stupid, but um, more importantly, I feel like this sort of... Um, uh, they're, they're sort of nihilistic about uh, the idea of, you know, economic progress being a form of human progress. And that there really is sort of a a, a... a There is a substantive debate here. The idea is, you know, is there... Um, Is there any sort of consensus? Should we have a consensus about what kind of economies are better than others?
1: Well, you know, if reading is not good, then why are they writing a book? I suppose that's the first question.
0: Um, Well, it gets attention. But also, (laughs) they, they find the Dark Ages you know, a, an interesting period and they like the stuff that was produced then. They find it fascinating and they find the need to, uh, to tell the world that, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but the idea that thou shalt not slander my favorite historical period by pointing out that it was quite poor and brutish and violent mm-hmm. seems to me nihilistic. Right. Um, the idea that, um, that you're an idiot and that the weight of academic knowledge and learning is against you simply because you dare to discuss economic measurements instead of purely subjective uh you know cultural measurements of you know these couple of historians that to me feels like a nihilistic idea the idea you know it is it is a rejection of the idea that human societies can can progress and of course you know morality is ultimately an opinion you're you're perfectly within your rights to say there's no such thing as progress. That's an incoherent idea. No society is better than any other society. In fact, the, you know, the lifeless deserts of Mars are actually equivalent to any biome that's existed or in the, you know, on Earth and to any human civilization that's ever existed. You are absolutely free to say that and there probably is somebody who does say that. They probably live in northern California and don't wear shoes, but they do say that. And um so it can't be refuted. You know, it's just a value judgment. It's an opinion, but it's an opinion that I don't like. I think when people have enough stuff, when people have things to eat and are less at risk of dying of diseases, when fewer babies, you know, die before the age of five Mm -hmm. and when fewer people are murdered and all of these things, you know, people have houses around them, et cetera, I call that better. And I know that's a value judgment. I know that's subjective. But I say that that should be a fairly wide consensus among learned people that we should call that better.
1: Mm. And that if you think that most societies before 1870 were Malthusian in the sense that people were barely holding it together in the sense that their biomedical health was sufficiently poor, that the population could barely do anything more than reproduce itself even with women having an average of eight pregnancies and one woman in seven dying in childbed. that even under those conditions, having a little bit more food to eat was a good thing, you know, and having enough shelter that you weren't wet and enough clothing that you weren't cold and enough of the conveniences of life that, you know, daily life was somewhat easy because you could actually buy some cloth from someplace or buy a pot rather than have to make it yourself. Um, but those are important things, you know, and then there's the question of, is what is the value of the high culture that surrounds you? You know, was it a good thing to that people could go to the festivals, you know, of the Roman Empire, um, to the Lupercalia and such? Um, or was the high civilization simply an exploitative and grifting con game? And you know, its collapse of social order, aqueducts, and so forth, um, large-scale trade—the fact that someone in Hadrian's Wall, uh, but working at Hadrian's Wall, might well have a pot made in northern Italy—that um, the collapse of all of that is of no account.
0: Well, even for a mm-hmm. you know, even for a, a a radical cultural egalitarian such as myself, who thinks that I am not fit to judge. The, and perhaps no one is fit to judge the value of one high culture over another. You know, it's not possible to say whether disco is better than opera, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Even from that point of view, I think that I would say that people getting enough to eat and not dying of disease and having walls around them yeah. uh, is that is good. Um, and in which and, case, um,
1: if you want to defend, if you want to defend the Dark Ages, you pretty much have to adopt the Scottish critique of London and say, yes, we don't have high culture, but we we treat each other fairer.
0: Um, Right. If the Dark Ages were, in fact, more egalitarian, which I think is not necessarily clear. Like, you can have more economic equality because the rich people all get clobbered and everybody's equally poor, but that doesn't mean you necessarily have social egalitarianism because you still may have strong people just raping weak people all the time or just beating them to death as they see fit you so can have a lot of inequality yeah. of violence uh you know and social status without uh inequality of money
1: so that basically marcus tullius cicero in classical rome has more can eat has much more than enough to eat and wealth in terms of huge numbers of slaves to deploy immense amounts of social power Um, which he uses in writing books and reading things and having interesting experiences in talking with his friends and in trying to keep Mark Antony and Octavian from becoming rulers of the Roman Empire, for which he gets his head cut off. You know, while seven centuries later, right, Roger of the Geats, a king in Denmark, has nothing but a big hall in which he can assemble and feed a hundred warriors a day. And he has his wealth, he has his thralls and his serfs, and he uses them to raise huge amounts of cows so that he can feed his warriors meat, so that his warriors will protect him against the neighboring king um, or against the monster Grendel um, when the neighboring king or when the monster Grendel comes for him. Um, And that these are the collapse of the first high culture into the second. is somewhat of a loss because you know um, Roger is pretty bored um, that he, is, he has nothing to do but roam around looking at his cows during the day, fight wars and sit in his hall at night, drink beer, um, drink mead, um, eat meat and watch his warriors eat meat. Mm. And for him, the very fact that there would be someone who comes along once a month who can actually tell a story to the accompaniment of a musical instrument who can tell the story of Siegfried, um, Fafner's bane, and how he was tricked into marrying the wrong woman by the Burgundians. Um, that's a major high for Roger in his castle, um, or in his hall on the shores of Denmark. Well, Cicero would have said, what, if you only get to hear a story like this once a month? Um, your life is really impoverished, that's really weird.
0: Cicero is here wondering why bards are actually a class in Dungeons and Dragons. He's saying that's not that's not important enough. I see. Bard? Yes. What are you gonna do? Hit him with your loot? Yes. Touche. Touche. Anyway. All um right. so I think we should wind this
1: up. Um, and I let me wind this up by saying that I have noticed this strand. Um and I would say that calling it Dark Ages, saying there was the Dark Ages and then there was the Renaissance. Um is definitely definitely much much too far but saying that in western europe late antiquity turned into a dark age from which you know france germania and britain did not begin to emerge until 800 or so and that there was a substantial reduction in the intensity and expertise of high culture in a much wider area and a general slowdown in what we think of as technological progress, Eurasia wide, um, that's a hill that I'm going to be willing to die on.
0: All right. So, um, uh, before we leave a quick housekeeping note, we have taken a long hiatus from Hexapodia. We
1: have, we have, I got completely overwhelmed in the spring by uh, my, by
0: my day job
1: and various other things as well.
0: But Hexapodia, uh, shall now return.
1: And we will aspirationally be weekly.
0: Uh, Probably a bit less than weekly, given, um, you know, all the stuff you have to do.
1: All right. Aspirationally
0: biweekly. Aspirationally biweekly, which in this case okay. means once every two weeks, not twice um, a week.
1: All right. So I think the key insight is that don't over don't overclaim claim for what the Dark Age was, uh, but do recognize that the fall of the Roman Empire in the West did bring on a real Dark Age afterwards. In Britannia, in Germania, and also in Gallia, um, the very fact that Gallia is no longer called Gallia, but is in fact called Francia, um, France, indicates how big the change was and how much the old civilization vanished um, under the impact of the new immigrants.
0: Noah, what, what is, Charles what is de Gaulle? Your, yep. What
1: is your key insight?
0: My key insight is that. Uh... Historians are perfectly within their rights to demand that uh, people do the reading in terms of reading the historical interpretations uh, they've produced, but that there is a symmetric obligation for them to do the readings of economic history and of economics when, you know, making assessments like this, that economic data is valuable and that economic progress, if not objective, is at least something that most people would agree is really progress. And um, and so the. The historians also need to do the reading here.
1: And I would also add that historians should recognize that Gregory of Tours is not as good a prose stylist as either Cicero or Tacitus was.
0: I will remain neutral on that question. And uh, but as always, our key insight is Hexapodia.
1: This has been Noah Smith's and Brad DeLong's Hexapodia podcast um on the late antiquity pause. Um Returning after a long hiatus, thank you very much for listening. And goodbye. And goodbye.